welcome to The Near Memo, a weekly conversation about search, social, and commerce. What happened, why it matters, and the implications for local. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Near Memo, episode 43, uh, the post-Thanksgiving uh, L-tryptophan turkey coma uh, edition. We're all back. Um, hope everybody had a good holiday and more holidays coming up, but we'll have intervening near memos. Um, I'm here as always with Mike and David, and we're talking about search, social, and commerce and the big news of the week. Uh, there was a lot of stuff that happened over the last two weeks, and one of those um, items was the local search ranking factors report, which David started years and years ago, now 15, almost 15 years ago, and Darren Shaw at Whitespark. Yeah, mixed Crazy. dates you, right? Thir- yeah. 13 years ago, I think, yeah. Was it 13? 2008, 2008. Uh, yeah. Oh. Okay. So, so David, um, you know, you, at one point you we talked about the meaning of OG. Maybe we need to come up with a new acronym, like <laughs> O-O-G-G, like an old original Something. gangster guy. <laughs> yeah. Oog, yeah. oog. So that I'll, I'll <laughs> leave it. To, I'll leave it to our listeners to, uh, yeah. to vote. You can you can oh, thumb oh. up or thumb down that suggestion on YouTube. Yeah, it's a, it's an instant thumbs down. I think double O double G. But um, so so the venerable the venerable study, as I called it in the article uh, this week, um, is is really interesting on a number of levels. But we're going to defer our conversation about that to next week when we're going to have Darren Shaw as a guest. Darren Shaw and Whitespark uh, took over. Um, uh, shepherding uh, ownership, if you will, of that uh, of that study, which is really interesting and valuable for everybody. There is an article on the site. If you go into analysis, you can take a look at uh, the piece I wrote this week about it. But look forward to next week when we have Darren live and we get to uh, pepper him with all sorts of uncomfortable questions. I think. <laughs> all right. So, um, so I think you're. Um, Mike, you're going to lead us off this week, and you're going to be talking about your um, MedCap trip across America, right? Right. So, as you know, for the past couple of weeks, I've been heads down studying Apple Maps, both for a presentation at Local U last Tuesday, which was a great event, as well as for several articles and a nice report that David put together at Near Media. Uh, and as a note, that report as PDF is available. If you subscribe to our newsletter, you'll get this free report on Apple Maps as a, as a discovery tool. And so I decided to, as Steve Jobs used to say, eat my own dog food. So I had to, we had a uh, rapidly planned <laughs> trip where we had to drive from New York to Santa Fe. Uh, and we, I decided to use, and my wife agreed that we would only use Apple Maps as our primary tool for traveling. We wouldn't use Google at all. And we wanted to see how that went. And what was amazing to me was that, or has been amazing, is that it has worked very well. I mean, I know that I've talked about this, but uh, firstly, their navigation has been dramatically upgraded. We had the first day serious lake effect snows on the south shore of Lake Erie through Cleveland. And it's like people in Ohio don't know how to drive in lake effect snow. Hello. Meanwhile, there was accident after accident on the highway that Apple was accurately alerting us to. And as the cars got removed from the highway, the map was updating in real time. So there, the detail of navigational information has improved dramatically. We then did a bunch of searches for gas stations and coffee and lunch and en route. All went very well from a discovery point of view. What we couldn't do within Apple I'm Maps curious was on book that. a if hotel. I can, if I can just yeah. interrupt, Mike, on the on the coffee and lunch uh, question as you go across America. So Google, I think, does a relatively good job of interspersing 
true mom and pop businesses in three packs, even in relative mom and pop deserts. Um, and I'm curious if that was your experience with Apple Maps as well, or if you were just getting McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's. Well, we were getting a pretty good mix because it's that particular uh, vertical is primarily Yelp based for information and ranking in Apple Maps seems to be proximity is very, very strong plus reviews. So if it was well reviewed, it showed up in the Apple Maps uh, regardless of size. Uh, we even found a really nice state park, a historic state park that we explored during one lunch break that way. But what didn't work was hotels, and we used hotels tonight for that. Um, but from a, and then here in Santa Fe, we've been using it to find ice cream shops and et cetera, and it's been working fine. And so, I mean, it's just interesting to me, given its bad reputation and that it has really matured to the point of it being a great navigation tool and a reasonably good discovery tool, um, not up to I, I think you're, standard. I think you're single-handedly changing Apple Maps reputation, Mike, uh, <laughs> given all the, tw the tweets from local you that I saw. Well, I mean, you know, my exploration of it is, is, is that it's becoming significant and from a marketing point of view, even if it's a pain they has to deal with, it is significant. And it's, did you, uh, did you see, did you see any native reviews for any of the, just in your organic looking searches for coffee shops, et cetera, did uh, you see any of the Apple native reviews? Mostly in restaurants we're seeing it. Yeah. So like uh, not so much in coffee shops, but in restaurants I'm starting to see native reviews. One of the big questions that I have is like how many, mostly they had six, a minimum of six. So the question, though, is that they're not being replaced automatically. Like Yelp reviews aren't being replaced automatically. There's some number you have to have for Apple to hmm. replace Yelp reviews. I don't know what that number is. See, so it seems like that transition. would be a valuable number to report because I'm sure there are a ton of businesses out there that would like to bump their Yelp reviews from their Apple profile. It, exactly. I mean, it's a great, I mean, it certainly would look a whole lot better. And because it's just, even if you only have four or five, it still shows you as a hundred percent or ninety five percent satisfaction. Right. So mm -hmm. I think that's and it's, I think and it's a lot was, easier to ask for an Apple thumb than it is for a Yelp review, <laughs> and yes. let alone to get the Apple thumb to stick. So so and I know and anecdotally, I've heard from a number of sophisticated users. Both of you have started to use Apple Maps, I believe. I've yeah, yeah I've been using more. it for years. Yeah, yeah and, I'm, I, I'm using it almost exclusively now right. for navigation. And, and that's a shift, right? I mean, historically, it's only been default users by people who didn't know any better. They thought they were on Google Maps. They're actually using Apple Maps. But over the past several years, I've heard a number of these anecdotal stories of more sophisticated users switching. It was either for privacy reasons or actually the navigation experience, which is quite good, or perhaps they had an Apple Watch. Um, so there's a number of, of reasons people have switched. Don Campbell, you know, it's another one that's switched. And, and so I'm hearing that more and more. So it's just interesting. It's taken... Nine years, 10 years, what are we on here? Uh, yeah, nine years, yeah, released time. in 2012. And obviously it takes a long time to overcome that the stain on their reputation. Yeah. So speaking of tweeting about Apple Maps. Speaking of reputational stains, maybe. Yeah, yeah. okay, all right, better. Um, so David, you, you wanted to talk about um, uh, Twitter and the transition from uh, Jack Dorsey, who left, resigned, stepped down, whatever statement was asked you want to, to use. step down by the board. It sounded like well, it was pr probably mm -hmm. probably a mix of of factors involved. You know that they the the activist investors were really frustrated with the lack of revenue growth, and Dorsey was probably 
fed up. And also the the two CEO, the dual role that he has with um, uh, Square now Square. Block yeah. and uh, and Twitter. Right. Um, you know, the, the, all the, all those things undoubtedly contributed. So now Twitter has a new CEO, and there was a very interesting article about their business model and some of the challenges that they face that you wanted to talk about. Yeah, so my, I think Mike was the one who actually brought this to all of our attention, and, and Greg, you included it in a newsletter uh, earlier this week. But Ben Thompson, uh, one of the Bucks' largest celebrity fans, uh, also tech luminary and thought leader uh, from St- Stratechery, published um, his sort of suggestion for Twitter's new business model. And it's, you know, it's one that um, I think a lot of people have suggested over time that they uh, they have this, you know, fairly flat uh, user base, um, but a very highly engaged segment of that user base, which is something like 120 million daily active users or something like that. And so, and, and it certainly resonates anecdotally with my usage and, I think probably most of our usage is that uh, it is our primary social network uh, outside of, in Mike's case, I know texting is, is kind of the, the main the main social network for him. But um, it is, I think, for a certain segment of the population, the primary social network. And it's also the place that news breaks. I mean, literally, this is where you go, you know, sort of as a source of news. Um, and so um, Thompson's sort of suggestion was that Twitter turn itself into a subscript pay to, pay to subscribe service because those 120 million users are addicted. He used the term Twitter gives you the ability to mainline information, which I loved, um, and that we're not going anywhere. We'll happily pay a nominal fee. Uh, and you'd cut down on a whole bunch of you know spam and, and potentially propaganda accounts, or at least make it a lot more expensive uh, to spread propaganda. Um, so that was, you know, A, not a very... You know, a suggestion. I think you know. I would happily pay it as a user. Um, the, are do, the, are you or, subscribing to Twitter Blue? Are you thinking no, about subscribing to that? No, I don't even know. I mean, I have some vague notion of what it is, but it it wasn't okay. interesting enough to me to subscribe. Um, yeah. The but I thought that there were a number of interesting points that he raised. Uh, one statistic that I didn't realize just how bad it was, as which is where the reputational stain <laughs> comment came from that Twitter's uh, quarterly revenue is like 10% of Facebook's, uh, or excuse me, 4, 4% yeah. of Facebook's. Yeah. Um, one, you know, basically a billion dollars a quarter or something like that, as opposed to 29 billion from Facebook. Um, so you can certainly see why the activist investors are, are angry. Um, somebody that I know that many of us read, Scott Galloway has been kind of banging this drum for a long time, not that he's an activist investor, but just like, you know, this is pathetic given Twitter's place in sort of the cultural uh, culture, culture verse, um, yep. and the, the number of, of dedicated users they have. So that was an interesting stat. Number one, I didn't realize just how bad it was, but as I thought more about his comment and he sort of compared Twitter's user base to Instagram's, to Facebook's, to Snapchat, that sort of thing. And as I thought about, you know, kind of what makes Twitter unique for me, uh, as opposed to Instagram where it's sort of this visual medium and there's, there's sort of all this aspirational stuff happening. Um, and with Twitter, it's much more about consuming information, in, in my case anyway, much, much faster than I can do it in any, on any other social network. Um, I can scroll through my, my curated tweet stream, at least that's how I use Twitter as you know, a set of lists, um, and I can get a whole bunch of information very, very quickly. And it seems like that's what Twitter should be focused you know, primarily on monetizing the speed of information. And 
uh, Thompson brings this up at the very end that why not just focus on uh, potentially as a sister sort of business line to the subscription, license the API for developers to actually build on, um, developers and other companies to subscribe to. I'm sure that if Twitter enforced a subscription that Google would happily pay them more than a billion dollars to understand what content people were sharing, what links were getting liked and responded to and all of those sorts of things. So there has to be a much bigger business in licensing the the main line of information, as, as Thompson says, um, I think, than certainly than Twitter's advertising play today, which is only a billion dollars a quarter and potentially even more than their subscription monetization might be. So. Didn't wasn't there originally a licensing business? I mean, there was a lot of third party. There was a whole developer developer ecosystem around them. I don't know if they were charging they for that. But they essentially shut down because they yeah, didn't want people right. building better clients than they right. could produce themselves. But um, I think that there's there's got to be ways either with terms of service or with you know how how you uh, filter the information or or that sort of thing that uh, they could get around that. I st I just think that the the information stream of Twitter and the speed of it. Uh, and the um, what I the, the, the lack of, like that, there's so much fluff on every other social network, yeah. Uh, and and the ability to just get to the point on Twitter is, I think, what they should be trying to monetize. So, yeah, it's the asymmetry of Twitter, which is there's so there's some good producers, and most people are consumers. Really, right. would strike me that having alternative clients would not be a huge problem. They need to just take care of the produce of the publishers, the producers, from a membership point of view, and the rest could read. And it would, in fact, perhaps improve that because when they added advertising to my timeline, which had never been in because I was a whatever, I have to, you know, number of enough followers, I didn't have it. Now it's really annoying because every third tweet is an ad right. that I don't yep. care about. Well, I mean, I think I think there's probably a whole bunch of stuff that could be done if they if they reopened a developer ecosystem that would be interesting to them. Um, so I think that that's that's they that's have good been advice. slowly reopening the API, have they not? Wait, is my understanding? Is there is an API that is available uh, now? And there is an API. I'm not I'm not an expert in the Twitter developer uh, ecosystem. I will say that it, um, Tidings, you know, for a long time has been part of the, the Facebook developer ecosystem, and it's been a pretty big pain in the butt, uh, to be honest. Um, and so I think that they're. There, there must be a play uh, to start to attract developers. LinkedIn has a, I would say, notoriously uh, tight control of its API. And so there is potentially a, pay, a play also for Twitter to sort of position itself as the developer-friendly social network here. Right. Yeah, if, the, if, if Google is paying Apple $15 billion, you'd think they would pay Twitter <laughs> even more than a billion. But. For sure. And, you know, it, I'm, I'm shocked that Twitter hasn't, you know, sort of had that conversation with Google yet. If if they have, they're selling their feed for way too cheap uh, if they're only making a billion dollars a quarter. So I think there are a ton of interesting SMB use cases for Twitter as, as well um, that, you know, we could talk about at length, but maybe for another time. Um, no, give, so give, me in, one give me one example. Well, just, just, um, just, you know, I mean, you you can follow businesses. <laughs> He's tongue-tied at this moment. No, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, people. So SMBs focus on on Instagram and Facebook, right? Facebook in particular, and they could do a lot of the same things on Twitter. And there's just much less friction on Twitter. You know, I mean, the sort of the the a lot of my 
challenge in dealing with small business service providers because I'm doing a bunch of stuff to my house is that they're just not responsive. You know, they just don't respond. And so if you could train people on Twitter to to be accessible and respond, it would it would be, you know, you could create. I mean, didn't they create a directory of sorts recently? I thought they did. I don't remember. There was in some country. Twitter places long ago, uh, which was yeah. powered by Infogroup, if I recall. But that's yeah, but I mean, I think I think passed. there are ways in which you could do small business discovery and and lead gen and communication on Twitter that might be. I, you know, I haven't mapped this out in some elaborate product <laughs> plan, but I just I, I instinctively feel like it's possible, and it would be easier to use than you know Google or Yelp or Facebook. You know, in in the current in the current ways in which we we use those to interact with small businesses. Yeah. But um, so my my item to sort of close out today uh, is kind of a little bit um, a little bit fluffy but interesting. Uh, there are a number of former Google employees who were terminated um, for allegedly uh, leaking confidential information. They were activists. They were internal employees who were outspoken about. Um, certain things that Google was doing uh, with, with uh, I guess, immigration authorities or were was contemplating contemplating um, doing. And um, they're suing Google for several things, among, among them for violating the pledge to not be evil. And their contention is that this, co- this which was part of the code of conduct up till a certain point, uh, became a contractual term because employees signed employment agreements incorporating the code of conduct. And so they were acting in accordance with the don't be, don't be evil mantra and the, the imperative to alert Google when it's being evil. Um, and, and they say that they were fired um, for that, that behavior. And there's more going on in the lawsuit, but that, that was kind of interesting to me. And it, it's, it's a pretty far-fetched claim that that piece of it the contractual claim but it's but it's interesting um to me on many levels so i don't know if you guys great clickbait yes it it worked on me um (laughs) well i mean i think i think what it represents right and this is part of a larger discussion it represents sort of the early idealism of companies like google and facebook and twitter and others who, who held themselves out as new kinds of companies that were embracing a certain kind of perspective or value set. And what has happened is they've matured, as you were just discussing, David, is that you get a lot of pressure just to make money and to maximize the value of the company, to m- improve the market cap or to maximize revenue. And so there's this tension between these original values and what these companies have become, which is mature, you know, really mature, huge capitalist engines and and their employees and people in the world are still kind of adhering to the old values or many people are and feel that um you know the 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 move toward more monetization is a betrayal and all the you know things like working with the the dod or the the uh, you know customs and border protection or or whatever it is and so that's you know i think that that's my response to that is that it's a naive holding of an old ideal and that capitalism is a very tough taskmaster. If one company is generating super profits, for example, with AI and the Department of Defense and Google's not there, then capital is going to flow to that other company. And capital flows dictate, at least amongst the larger companies, 
you know, maybe not amongst really small companies, what VCs call lifestyle companies, right? These are companies that put the value of the employer, the value of the customer as high as the value of profit. But in most larger companies, you know, there is one master and that master has to be served. Otherwise, capital will flow in the other direction. And so from where I sit, this is, it's interesting that Google is finally being called out. It's interesting that their reputation is finally taking some hits here. But as I pointed out in the past, I mean, it shouldn't be a company du jour. It shouldn't be this month. It's Google. Last month, it was Amazon. Two years ago, it was uh, Walmart. And before that, it was Microsoft. The reality is that this is an issue with the way capitalism and stock markets work. If you don't like it, change those things. But don't, you know, otherwise, the rest of this is just sort of naive thinking from my point of view. David, do you want to add anything I mean, to there's that? a lot to unpack there. Um, I would say <laughs> I generally agree with the uh, the implied advice that Mike gave. If you are, if if you know, if this kind of corporate ethics is really important to you, you should probably go to work for a smaller startup with more control over its own financial destiny and more influence over its its policies and who it does business with. Well, I mean. Are are we just to sort of throw up our hands and say, oh, the whole system is corrupt by definition and there's nothing to be done and, you know, uh, pass the, you know, preferred uh, intoxicant, <laughs> you know, party like it's 1999 or whatever? I mean, I think it's a little bit on your point of view. If you believe that capitalism is reformable with appropriate governmental regulation, then government provides an, a, a chance in the form of a more aggressive FTC or Department of Justice to bring some of the worst excesses in line. But that's a big question, whether or not government is independent of capital or totally intertwined with capital. And so, but if you believe that that's the case, then your, out, your outlet is, you know, working with the government to increase regulation to remove some of the excesses, the abusive excesses of these companies. Well, right. I, I'm That's, not quite I, as... I, I agree with that. I think that the, I, I was, I was going to say, I think you have to fight capitalism with capitalism. I don't think we're overturning the system anytime soon. And yeah. that, yes, if you have a strong regulatory arm at the government that is preventing monopolies from happening, theoretically, uh, with good journalism, and you know, I guess in this case, this is sort of uh, more PR than, than actual journalism, but you can start to consumers will, will, if, if they have a choice, they will start to move to better, uh, players. And I think we're starting to see that uh, I, well, we're at the very early stages of what I hope we're starting to see with consumers actually having an alternative to buy from local businesses instead of Amazon with things like Shopify, even with things like the Walmart distribution network that we've covered in, right. in previous near memos. And so I think if you do have consumer choice, if you have government regulation, uh, appropriate government regulation of these essentially monopolies, that consumers will eventually vote with their dollars for issues that they really care about. Well, I mean, I, I, I tend to be sort of less cynical about the system, perhaps. But I also I also believe that consumers will do the right thing if if that's easy for them and if they're given the opportunity to. Right. And I think, you know, this is a long conversation in, a, in itself, and I think we're almost out of time. But I do think that 
uh, people in Gen Z especially care. Millennials, not as much. The older you get, the less people care about these social concerns in their purchase and behavior. But Gen Z does care. And there are uh, ESG funds out there. You know, BlackRock, one of the biggest hedge funds in the world, is trying to direct some of its investing toward more socially responsible things. And, you know, climate change dictates that we change how we uh, do things in, in the world. And so I do think these these values matter. And I think that, that the companies that declare them should be held to them. Uh, I think this particular lawsuit is probably destined to fail. It may succeed on some uh, California labor code violation grounds, but it's not going to succeed probably on the don't be evil conceptual contract term. But I do think these things are important. And I, I don't think companies should hold out these values and then uh, just treat them as, you know, sort of the, the, the ethics washing or whatever the equivalent would be. Just <laughs> pretending like, oh, yes, we can say these words, and they really ultimately don't mean anything, but we want to use right. them to attract people who th- who take them seriously. It's so, almost, yeah, yeah, that's right. Go ahead. No, no. No, no, that's, you like, said it better just than a, I, I don't so. know. The, the one counterweight that I would add to this, if you want to see how markets get created and controlled through the government being sort of intertwined with capital, watch Dope Sick on Hulu. A great example of how a market literally was created around pain relief that spoke to profit, not people, and how the FDA and largely the legal system was co-opted by that, as well as all these institutes that studied pain. So it just shows you how that mechanism works at a a meta level. And, you know, it, it is problematic and it is bigger than just consumers deciding because this. Well, they don't have they don't have complete. Yeah. They don't have complete choice, right? Complete, the doctor says you need oxycontin. Right. So right. if you, I mean, Dope Sick, I thought was a greatly done, really well done view of how, how this works, how regulation works. Yeah. Or I, doesn't. I just start, I just started it. I haven't really gotten deeply into it, but I will on it and make a, unless David, you want to make another comment on this point. I will say, uh, apropos of nothing, that a, a much happier documentary or sh- show is the Beatles uh, Get Back on Disney <laughs> Plus, which is which is which is a which is which is at once tedious and totally amazing. If you haven't seen it, it's really well worth seeing if you can stand the eight hours of footage. But it's just it's really just a remarkable thing if you're at all a Beatles fan, and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. So. We'll be back next week to talk about more TV and movies. And And the local search ranking factors. And the local search ranking factors with special guest Darren Shaw. It'll be a dedicated episode, and we'll we'll explore that in detail. So have a good week, everybody. Thanks for joining. Thanks for joining David, Mike, and Greg. To stay on top of the latest developments in local, subscribe to our newsletter at nearmedia.co. We'll see you next week.